0: Greetings, greetings, fellow Who-Gazers. Welcome to Doctor Who Literature, the new podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'll be your host on this journey, this very long journey. For the moment, this podcast is just me, working away on my laptop in my kitchen, which is also my dining room, which is also my work-from-home office in this the 20th month of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is also now my recording studio. The Doctor Who novelizations were largely put out by Target books from the early 1970s through the early 1990s. They were nominally aimed at kids, but have taken on a sort of immortality, and there are still Doctor Who novelizations being published up to this very day, with the distinctive multicolored Target bullseye logo on the spine and front cover. I've been reading and rereading the Target books since January 1985, but I won't be revisiting the books in the order in which I found them. I started off a few weeks ago with the very first book, the Frederick Muller books from the 1960s, and assuming I get that far in the end, I'll reach the last of the Target novelizations, which is currently The Witchfinders by Joy Wilkinson, though I hear that other books will be published next year in 2022. I'll be on, perhaps, an overly ambitious one-episode-a-week schedule, at least at first. I started reading the books about two months into my Doctor Who fandom. On my now-largely-defunct blog, Doctor Who Novels at WordPress, that's novels at wordpress.com, I talked about my origin story with the books, and posted a series of reviews, some brief capsules going in random order, and then longer-form, almost page-by-page analyses of the first dozen or so books. For this podcast, I plan to stick to that publication order and talk about the books from a literary standpoint. There will be some storytelling along the way, mostly in terms of my own individual experiences with the books and how my physical copies over the years have taken on the outward characteristics of my own fandom. My basic thesis? The target books have extraordinary literary merit, particularly those written by the titans of the series, Terence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and as we'll be talking about today, David Whittaker. Of course, we'll also reach Terence Dix's sometimes maligned late 1970s output, when he was churning out six or eight different hundred-page volumes a year. But I'll have some surprising opinions about those books, too. And frankly, some of the books, particularly in the mid-1980s, are poorly written turkeys. But, as Doctor Who fans, they're our poorly written turkeys. Certainly, I still have all my books, and they've followed me from my childhood bedroom on Long Island, through two cross-country moves to California and back to New York, and they still live in my bedroom today. So even the bad ones are worth talking about, and talk about them we shall. Let's get to it. (laughs) Doctor Who and the Crusaders. Written by David Whittaker. Adapted from the teleplay The Crusade by David Whittaker. Novelization published in February 1966. Within minutes of the TARDIS's arrival on 12th century Earth, says the back cover blurb, the Doctor and his companions are in serious trouble. They happen to intercept a Saracen attack on Richard the Lionheart, thereby enabling the English king to escape otherwise certain capture. But Barbara is kidnapped and carried off by the Saracens to the Sultan Saladin's court. Saladin spares her life, on condition she entertains his court by telling stories. And, like Scheherazade, if she fails, then she must die. Now, typically, I'll read out from the first paragraph of the book, but this time it feels more appropriate to read out a paragraph from the end of the prologue instead. The next time we visit Earth, I hope we encounter a situation where two men are opposed to each other, each for the best reasons. That is the only way to understand the folly, the stupidity, and the horror of war, when both sides, in their own way, are totally right. The First Doctor. This is one of those books which challenged me at age 12, which is when I would have first read it. I know the Crusade was supposed to be something special, but the book was full of a lot of Faded historic allusions, no 12-year-old kid on Long Island is going to know who Clive of India was. There's flowery language, but an utter lack of the sort of sci-fi hijinks that drew me into Doctor Who in the first place. Not only that, Doctor Who and the Crusaders was long and dense. The 1980s target reprint goes to page 160, and it starts, of course, as most of them do on page 7, meaning the book is 154 pages long, about half again as long as some of the later Terrence Sticks books, and it's adapting a mere four-part story. The other two Frederick Muller novelizations had to fit the same or similar page counts into seven- and six-part serials, whereas The Crusade was merely a four-parter. I tried to read one episode a night back then, having to guess where the cliffhangers would have been, and that was a challenging pace in this instance. One night, I didn't have time to read what I had allocated as the episode two material, I think I decided back then it was chapters 3 and 4. So I just skipped whatever I didn't finish and moved on. I had to read chapters 5 and 6 or episode 3 the next day. Yeah, I I was a strange kid. What of it? Also, you're saying, what does he mean, was a strange kid? As an adult, I can appreciate fully just how special Doctor Who and the Crusaders really is. This is the last of the three Frederick Muller adaptations. It came out in early 1966, at the tail end of the Hartnell years, as the show's status as a pop culture phenomenon was decidedly on the decline. There wouldn't be another new novel after this, for another seven or eight years. Until Target took over the reins, and the story being adapted, unlike The Daleks or The Web Planet, was not a showy effects piece, abrim with memorable monsters or strange alien worlds. It was only a historical the very genre of which was on the brink of obsolescence under the incoming Innes Lloyd-Jerry Davis production team. But David Whittaker looks at all that context, says, Ha! and proceeds to write his own very bold mission statement of what Doctor Who should be. Of course, it doesn't hurt that he's adapting his own scripts from the Crusade, and gets to quote lovely dialogues such as, A king at liberty may give commands. The captured one obeys them. Now, when adapting Terry Nation scripts from the Daleks, Whitaker went rogue and superimposed his own dialogue on top of Nation's story. For the Crusade, Whitaker is quoting himself, so he doesn't have to alter very much. The book opens, as I read from earlier, a remarkable prologue with the TARDIS crew in flight discussing why they haven't been able to interfere with Earth's history. They sort out the historical injustices of great men who die young while decrying the discoverers of murder weapons who die in old age as millionaires. Of course, nowadays that would be billionaires, but that's beside the point. Whitaker gives a strong character brief for each crew member, except Vicky. We learn that the Doctor always set things to rights, put down injustice, encouraged dignity, fair treatment, and respect. Ian is a bronzed, chiseled action hero with razor-sharp intellect. Barbara was the admiration and desire of all who met her, which is a polite way of describing all the unwanted male attention she got during her two years on the show, not to mention in this serial alone. She and Ian are now officially a couple, by the way, something the TV series would strongly imply in episodes such as The Romans, but never actually said outright. Susan, we're told, by the way, left the TARDIS crew and was married off to a 21st century freedom fighter named David Cameron. Okay, Whitaker got all those facts wrong from the Dalek invasion of Earth, specifically the departure scene which he had written himself. But it's something else, that history has given the name David Cameron of the 21st century a dreadful appendix. So that's fun to read in retrospect, sort of. Whitaker also describes a missing adventure. He decides that the story is set after the adventure of the talking stones of the tiny planet of Tyron in the 17th galaxy. Uh, Yeah, that would have been uh, much preferable to what happened on Vortis in the previous book. He also says that the pale gold of the interior lighting of the TARDIS shone down on the travelers like warm afternoon sunshine. You know, with writing like that, Whitaker can talk about talking stones as much as he likes. This whole prologue is lyrical and philosophical. It was the first prologue in a novelization. There would be many more down the road, but few this fascinating and in-depth. Whitaker has upgraded the first Doctor, from a sinister anti-hero to elder statesman even as the TV producers at the exact same time were trying to turn Hartnell invisible, or even worse, into Frederick Yeager. Moving on to the story proper, Whitaker preserves much of his own dialogue and plot, but restructures the action considerably. All of the Barbara and Saladin's court scenes from episode 1, are moved to what is likely the episode 2 portion of the book, which is roughly chapters 3 and 4. This makes the first two chapters firmly Ian's and the Doctor's show. Whitaker continues his mission statements with these pretty amazing descriptions of the TARDIS. It was one of the features of the Doctor's ship, Whitaker says, that it always assessed the place it landed in one millionth of a second before it materialized, and was thus able to avoid appearing in busy streets or underwater, or any of the 101 hazards which might endanger the safety of the ship and its occupants. Had its safety device been of a much wider sort, of course, it is more than likely it would have detected the presence of the coming struggle in the little forest outside Jaffa. But, of course, if this sensitivity had been so fine, there would be no chronicles about Doctor Who. Moving on to the Doctor, Whitaker says, "...it was the Doctor's very personal and peculiar strain of individuality that made him capable of bridging all the different places he visited, accepting them on their own terms." He would land abruptly in a new world as a stranger, and yet all at once become a part of that world, reaching out with curiosity and friendly interest to such a great degree that people assumed him to be no more than an ordinary visitor from across a range of mountains, or from over a small sea. So this is Whitaker, falling in love with his own story, and giving us a new mission statement, on the eve of the end of the Hartnell era, of just who the Doctor is no longer is the Doctor the anti-hero of the early days of Season 1, or, of course, the same character that Whitaker wrote two years earlier in Exciting Adventure with the Daleks. This is also not the madly giggling, often sidelined Doctor Who afterthought of the John Wiles era. This is Whitaker, telling us what he thinks the Doctor is really about, and what kind of character he must be. From here... It's easy to see why Whittaker was the man chosen to write the first story of the new Doctor, just a few months after this novelization came out.
1: Although we left a little of our pride back in the wood, there is some capital to be gained from the affair. Besides the violence and the tragedy, it has a humor. Humor? Is he delirious? I think I know what he means, sire. Here, yes, Saladin, mighty ruler and commander of huge armies, believes he captured you. You could turn this into a good story against Saladin. Look on the brighter side, my lord. A troop of men to capture one of your knights. Why, he'd need an army by itself and more to take your horse. Or every man he has in war to take you prisoner. You could spread this tale by word of mouth and all the world would know that Saladin fears you. Mm, sire, if you send to him and ask if he's finished playing his game and could you have your knight back, it'll make him look such a fool. There is a jest here, albeit a grim one with our friends dead. But Saladin must be just as much out of temper over this affair as we are. Your messenger might offer to exchange a hundred prisoners for the night he holds. You'd think we value Sir William highly. We do, but it would not be good to let Saladin know. He might think you undervalue his men. One hundred men to one of yours. (laughs) We think Sir Fair and Tire. (laughs) (laughs) By my father's name you have wit, old man. Guard, call the chamberlain. We recognize the service you have rendered us and will be pleased to see you in our court. We are your servant, sir.
0: Wow. I don't know about you, but I kind of want to just stop recording and go back and listen to the rest of that adventure. But turning instead to the back six chapters of Doctor Who and the Crusaders, which roughly adapt episodes two through four of the story, are just about as delightful as listening to the audio clip. It would be very easy to continue the rest of this episode by just quoting enormous blocks of text from those six chapters. Of course, that would be pushing the fair use doctrine to an absurd degree, so the challenge here is to talk about why I like the book without quoting from it too liberally. As good as the TV story was, as you just heard from that audio clip, Whitaker and the novelization took the opportunity to alter the details in many ways to make the book more dramatically rich complete. Therefore, dialogue passages go on for longer, tertiary characters get a lot more page time than they did on screen, they get more motivation, and whole scenes and uh, sequences are shuffled around and regrouped together to provide for a smoother reading experience. Indicative of this is a look at the screen title of episode 3, The Wheel of Fortune. That episode title is retained for the book but it's used for chapter 4 which was solely addressing episode 2 material on TV, and episode 2 was called The Night of Jaffa. Nothing from the chapter entitled The Wheel of Fortune correlates to any scene from the TV episode, episode 3 of the same title. So Whitaker may be novelizing his own TV scripts, but he certainly doesn't feel beholden by them. He'll change a significant amount of large details, even while telling the same story. The Doctor had promised us in the prologue that we're going to visit a war with each side led by a man who opposes the other man for the best of reasons. And that's what we get, mostly, in the two main guest characters, Richard the Lionheart and Saladin. On TV, Saladin was nicely underplayed by Bernard Kay, but never shows any lasting concern after Barbara is abducted from the protection of his court and disappears from the narrative after episode three. Richard the Lionheart, while moody and mercurial, as played by Julian Glover, as you heard earlier, briefly turns against the Doctor in Episode 3, but gets a wonderfully reflective and pious moment of redemption during his one televised scene in Part 4, with some great dialogue telling the Doctor, we were unjust to you to serve the greater good. In the novelization, however, Whittaker took that apart and flipped each character's story arc. After Richard turns on the Doctor in the Episode 3 material... There is no moment of redemption. The Doctor never sees him again in the book. The Doctor is never forgiven. However, Saladin does appear in the episode 4 material, this time actually getting to meet Ian. On TV, Barbara was the only TARDIS crew member he met. And the two of them discussed theology, of all things. I give you these passes, he told Ian, because I admire your bravery and courage, Sir Ian. Secondly... The Lady Barbara had believed she was under my protection, and I would have that belief honored. Lastly, El Akir has presumed upon my situation in this war, and his value to me in it, and I would have that rectified. His main army of four thousand men, it is true, is placed with the body of my fighting men in front of Jerusalem, but he has a personal guard and leader of several hundred. One thing, and one thing alone can bring success to your enterprise, the will of Allah. He smiled at Ian Riley. But of course, you are a Christian, and my words mean nothing to you. On the contrary, Your Highness, if you will forgive my contradicting you, the names and the phrases differ, but the purpose is the same in all races of intellect and culture. And that goes on for quite a spell more. That conversation certainly would not have fit in a 25 minute TV episode, but we'll always have the book to rectify that omission. Whitaker also gets to do more with the two villainous parts. On TV, Elikir was played by Walter Randall, who played a handful of secondary villains throughout the Hartnell era, but was more of an ensemble player than a principal guest star. In the book, however, Whitaker perfects Elikir's villainy. The character is thoroughly sadistic and vicious, and to the modern eye, it's a bit uncomfortable to read the sentiments that Whitaker puts in Elikir's head about the treatment of women. But the following window onto Elikir's soul is something I've never grown tired of reading. Whitaker says, It is always hard to understand a man without saving graces. All human beings have facets which make them admired, as much as those they may possess which may dismay or repel. Those who knew Elikir found nothing to recommend him, for they recognized in him a man saturated with guilt, so much so that his life could only continue by laying extra evils one above another, as if the man were tortured by the foul deeds he had committed, and had to hide them by inventing fresh crimes, and far worse ones at that, curtaining off yesterday's depredations with new villainies. And yes, that was the word depredations in a children's book. A more minor villain, Luigi Ferrigo, a Genoese merchant, who only appeared in Episode 2 on TV, and was given an open-ended fate, has a bigger role, and a better-defined arc in the novelization. He appears earlier in the story, and his misdeeds, helping el Akir kidnap Barbara from within Saladin's court, come with a far more definite price. Whitaker tells us, So, as each man instinctively chooses the path in life he thinks will take him quickest to whatever his desires may be, Farigo's way was shadowy and devious. Some said of him he'd rather earn one gold piece by guile than a fortune by straightforward dealing. While others were convinced he was so filled with the lust for riches, he would rise to any height, or sink to any depths to make a profit. One foundational rule of writing is to show, don't tell, but in this case I don't begrudge Whitaker his deciding to break the fourth wall and tell us exactly who a given character is. Not with writing like that. Harun-ed-Din, a Lebanese merchant whose life was ruined by Elakir before the Tardis crew arrived in the Holy Land, also has an expanded part in the book, with his backstory given even more tragic twists, and with his heroism in helping to take down Elakir at the end of the book made even more elaborate. Whitaker's ability to add dialogue, details, and more twists and turns pays real fruit in the climax, where an unlimited budget is thrown at the Part 4 material, removing it from the confines of Riverside Studio One. In the book, Ian gets to fight with Elakir, Elakir tortures Barbara, and a fire is set in Elakir's palace. Maybe one of those three things could have been realized on TV, but in the event... None of them were. On TV, the story ends as the travelers depart the Holy Land, and immediately find themselves trapped in the Space Museum, a story that I enjoy, but is probably less fondly remembered than the Crusade. The novelization is spared the need to lead into another story, lousy or otherwise. However, the novelization was also the last of its kind. This was the final Frederick Muller book, and until Target acquired the Doctor Who license, It would be another eight years before Doctor Who and the Crusaders led into anything. Next time, jump ahead with me to 1974, Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion, and the arrival of one Terence Dix on the novelization scene. What about my copy of Doctor Who and the Crusaders? I do not have one of the original Frederick Muller's or one of the earlier Target reprints. What I have is the 1982 edition, and mine comes to that via the 1984 reprint. It has a sort of powder blue uh, uh, cover, a spine and back cover, with the words Doctor Who and the Crusaders, David Whitaker in block print on the spine. And going in publication order, this is the first copy of a novelization that I have with a number. It's number 12. At some point in the 1980s, Target took all the existing novelizations and reissued them numerically, Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowman being number one, Crusaders coming early in the alphabet is number 12. That number scheme kind of went out the window because from that point on, books were not being published in alphabetical order. So at some point, uh, probably in the 60s or 70s, the numbers are assigned in the order in which a book is published. But the Crusaders at number 12, in publication order, it should have been number 3, is just done alphabetically. The front cover is part of the JNT and t era uh, mandate that past doctors not feature on the cover. So while the earlier target editions of the Crusade from the 1970s would have shown us William Hartnell, this one has the TARDIS, and then it has a Christian knight with his back to the camera fighting a Muslim warrior, who has a rather massive shield. Behind the warrior, there is a white city on a hill, and to the left of our crusader, there is a red-tinged bloodbath going on up against the side of the TARDIS. There is a masked knight on a horse flying a banner, and there are more crusaders, and the implication is that there's a lot of death and destruction and mayhem going on in there. My copy of the book is interesting because it's probably one of the last, chronologically speaking, novelizations where I went in and started marking out the cliffhangers. I know that this story was released on VHS, probably in 1999 or so, after episode one, The Lion, was rediscovered. And thanks to the VHS release of the two surviving episodes and the linking narration by William Russell, and then the inclusion of The Missing, episodes 2 and 4, on audio CD, I was finally able to figure out where the cliffhangers were. So ahead of the prologue, I wrote The Lion, which is the episode 1 title in red ink, although technically speaking, I should have put that over chapter 1 rather than over the prologue, because the prologue is entirely original material and is not televised. From that point on, Whitaker has... Chapters 1 and 2, to denote episode 1, although chapter 2, called The Night of Jaffa, is actually the episode 2 title, which would have been chapters 3 and 4. Above chapter 3, Anusha Harazada, I wrote in very uh, clean, neat, block text in red ink, I wrote The Night of Jaffa, which is episode 2. And as I mentioned earlier, chapter 4, called The Wheel of Fortune, refers to events that are not in episode 3, which is chapters 5 and 6 even though the chapters 5 and 6 material was called The Wheel of Fortune on TV. Chapter 5 is called The Doctor in Disgrace, that is the exit of King Richard the Lionheart from the novelization. Chapter 6 is pretty wonderfully titled The Triumph of el Akir, and the episode 3 material ends with the end of chapter 6. What's curious, and I have no recollection as to why I did this whatsoever, I did not write the episode 4 title over chapter 7, which is called The Will of Allah, and then chapter 8 is called Demons and Sorcerers. This refers to Chamberlain, who is probably the principal antagonist in the story, even more so than el Chamberlain is nominally on the side of the good guys, if you're going to fall back to the very dated and offensive suggestion that the, the Crusaders and the English were the good guys in this scenario. But the Chamberlain is a thoroughly nasty character and has, tries to have the Doctor lit on fire at the end of Chapter 8. Something else this book has is a lot of illustrations, and that was very common for the first few years of the Target line, both the three Frederick Muller reprints, which they issued in 1973, and then for the first few years of the new novelizations proper, uh, 1974, 75, and 76. The illustrations are by Henry Fox, he's credited on the title page, and there are pretty rich black and white illustrations throughout the book, not all of which feature the the TARDIS crew. Page 62 uh, features one of Saladin's officers, or possibly Saladin himself, terrorizing one of the serving girls, for example. Chapter 76, probably has Luigi Farigo, who survives on TV but does not survive in the book. There's a pretty good illustration of William Hartnell and Vicky on page 84. And there's an odd illustration of Ian on page 139, looking about two and a half feet tall. And then on page 137, there's El Akir, who looks pretty much as Walter Randall looked on TV, cracking a whip behind Barbara. And the last illustration in the book is page 147. It has Harun strangling El'Akir locked in mortal combat, which is how the book is resolved. Something else to talk about with the Crusaders is how it brings the Ian and Barbara storyline to its conclusion. In the novelization of the Daleks, which I talked about in episode one of this podcast, we talk about how Barbara has sort of a crush, or an unrequited crush, on Ian, and Ian doesn't understand it, and they spend much of the book uh, not talking to each other until the very end when they figure out what's going on. In the novelization, the two of them are clearly in love the whole time, and they have a full-on kiss at the end of the the episode 4 material, after Ian has rescued Barbara from Akir's clutches. Now, that's wonderful, it is not picked up on in the other novelizations. If memory serves me right, uh, when John Peel novelized their last televised story, uh, The Chase, in the late 1980s, he did not include an overtly romantic subtext for Ian and Barbara. In some of the 1990s and 2000s publications, like David A. McEntee's The Eleventh Tiger, which was one of the last BBC books past Doctor Adventures before the TV series came back in 2005 and made the past Doctor Adventures kind of obsolete, uh, they are explicitly acknowledged to have uh, gotten it on, so to speak, in the Romans, which most of us in fandom suspected already. And they've become engaged in that book, if memory serves me right. It's been a couple of years. But all these books uh, that make much of the romantic subtext between Ian and Barbara, including the New Adventures, which expressly say that they got married and they had a son, John Chesterton, who, in the world of The Virgin and the later BBC books, grows up to become a recording star, Johnny Chess, who actually appears later on in a Keith Topping novel and is expressly said to be (laughs) Tegan's future ex-husband. There's a coincidence for you. All that comes from David Whitaker, from the novelization of Doctor Who and the Crusaders. This was, unfortunately, David Whitaker's final bit of work for the Doctor Who books line. It's easy to overlook David Whittaker's place in the Doctor Who universe, but he was the titanic figure of the 1960s. If you read uh, any of the pieces on Tardis Arudatorum, or in the uh, books printed based on the same website material, there's an awful lot of praise given to David Whittaker, and almost all of it is justified in my opinion. He was the show's first story editor for the entire first production block. That goes from Unearthly Child all the way to the end of Dalek Invasion of Earth. After leaving the post of story editor, he stuck around and contributed quality material. He gave us the scripts for The Crusade. He gave us the scripts for Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks, which are widely hailed as classics. He attempted to do In the Wheel in Space In 1968, what Evil of the Daleks um, had done for the Daleks, he tries to do for the Cybermen. Whether or not he succeeds with the wheel in space is an open question. We'll eventually come around to that uh, novelization, which comes at the end of the target line uh, quite some time from now. But it is Whitaker trying to make something of the Cybermen and tell a new type of story that we hadn't seen with them before. Whitaker also did a lot of work uh, behind the scenes without credit on the movie adaptations of the first two Terry Nation Dalek serials, the Peter Cushing movies, and he also did work on the Daleks comic, which has recently been reprinted and is enjoying a second or third life here deep into the 21st century. Whitaker died very young. He was only 51 years old, which is only a couple of years older than I am now, and that's sobering. Uh The word has it that he was at work on a novelization of The Enemy of the World, which used to be an overlooked story because it's the one story from televised season 5 without monsters in it, but certainly based on the Ian Martyr novelization and based on the surviving audio. And then when the missing episodes were rediscovered in 2013 and the story was given a proper DVD release enemy of the world is an amazing story. And a lot of that has to do with the acting and the direction and the production values. Uh, Not so much maybe based on Whitaker's words, but it is a very strong script. Whitaker exited Doctor Who with a very little bit of Ambassadors of Death, which is one of my favorite stories. But what's great about Ambassadors of Death, unfortunately, has very little to do with David Whitaker, who left the writing process very early on in terms of the completion of the televised uh, scripted material it would have been wonderful to see what kind of novelization he would have given us for enemy of the world certainly Ian martyrs novelization of that is terrific albeit short but if whitaker had been given 180 pages like he was given with his two 1960s frederick muller books we could have been looking at a at a stone-cold classic And unfortunately whitaker passes away in 1980 51 years old does not get to come back to the target line, does not get to novelize The Enemy of the World or The Edge of Destruction or even The Wheel in Space or other of his acclaimed TV serials, doesn't get to contribute to the show again. And while it's conceivable he could have been around when the new series returned in 2005, we were also missing any creative input that he could have given us. Like I said, it is easy to overlook David Whitaker, when the story of the Hartnell years was retold on TV in 2013 for an adventure in space and time, Whitaker's character was merged with Mervyn Pinfield, who was very well played in that movie, but all of Whitaker's specific contributions there just wasn't time in a 75 minute TV movie to talk about the amazing gifts that David Whitaker gave us in the Doctor Who universe. One last thing that I want to talk about with Doctor Who and the Crusaders is the religious subtext. This is a holy war. It's the English invaders coming to the Holy Land and trying to conquer the, the land and take over Jerusalem and kick out what they call the Saracens. This is a simplistic view of history and it sort of ignores the horrible atrocities committed by the Crusaders as they were marching east across Europe to the Middle East, and it overlooks a lot of the atrocities that they committed against my own people who do not appear anywhere in the TV story or in the novelization, although I have my suspicions about the character Ben Dahir, who is a comedic figure who shows up for a few scenes in the TV story and also comedically in the book, but that's purely my own speculation. The story of uh, the Crusaders, which sort of gives nobility to the English as they try and conquer the Holy Land. Again, this is a very 1960s, whitewashed version of history, and you certainly could rewrite this story from any other point of view and give us a very different look at King Richard the Lionheart and his people. But if you set aside all that, the book itself does make a good-faith effort to place the two sides on equal footing, as the doctor tells us on the prologue, and you can certainly argue that by the end of the book, Saladin is a much more heroic and noble and dignified uh, figure than King Richard, who leaves the book early on, does not get that last moment of redemption that Julian Glover was given in the TV serial. Free.
1: The song of victory Israel. Oh, sing it out forever Israel oh, sing of, all our of the past and that we've won
0: Thank you for last. joining me on this episode of the Doctor Who Hell Literature Podcast I'm Jason your host and editor and producer This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found on Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels, that's Dr. Who Novels, and you can also find me on select episodes of the Trap One Podcast. I write about Dr. Who on Twitter using the hashtag Dr. Who Pilgrimage, that's Dr. Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, suggestions. Next time, we'll jump ahead to 1974 and Dr. Who and the Auton Invasion. All audio clips used in this episode are fair use or believed to be out of copyright. Thank you for listening, and keep turning the pages.